Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 6. We'll be looking at uh, verses 5 to 15. Stephen, you teed it up uh, quite well that we're going to be looking at the Lord's Prayer as we're praying through. Uh, Cherry picked the Lord's Prayer. That was wonderful. Please pray with me. Lord God, you know how far short I fall of the standard of prayer that you are about to tell your people in me to, to uphold. So I come uh, preaching this word with humility, and, but Lord, I ask you to give me boldness to do this. I do not rest in my, in my weakness and my humanity and my flesh as we preach how you would have this message. In Jesus' name, amen. So, a police officer pulled a driver aside and asked for his license and registration. The person looked at the police officer and said, what's wrong? What's going on? Why did you pull me over? I didn't go through any red lights, and I certainly wasn't speeding. And the officer agreed. He said, no, you weren't doing any of those things. But what I did see is that you were waving your fist at a person that swerved around you. And then I saw you yell at a driver of a Hummer that cut you off. And as I was following you even further, I saw how you pounded the steering wheel when traffic came to a dead stop near a bridge. I said, hey, listen, those aren't crimes. Police officer said, yes. But when I saw that Jesus loves you and so do I bumper sticker on the car, I figured this car had to be sold. <laughs> little jovial start, but it proves a point, gets to the point that, that we all can understand, and that is we all live critical lives uh, as, as Christians. Hypocrisy is a disconnect between what you confess and how you act, right? We claim to be one kind of person, we claim to be kind, we claim to be patient, we claim to be self-controlled, and we're anything but that on the road. We're anything but that in the grocery store. We're anything but that wherever that presses in on your life. We claim to love the world, yet we blow up in anger when a, when a person pulls out in front of us. We claim to be good, but we act bad, if you will. And this is the type of the hypocrisy that the world sees and the world hates, right? This is the type of hypocrisy that, that the world goes, see, how can I believe in what you believe when you act like that? But there's another more insidious type of hypocrisy that Jesus is getting at here today. Hypocrisy that the world does not hate, that the world does not see, but that God sees. And that's the type of hypocrisy where you look good on the outside, but are bad on the inside. Look with me at chapter 6, verse 5 to 15 in God's Word. This is Jesus teaching the multitudes on the hill. And he gets to this section and he says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. 
where they love to stand and pray in synagogues and on street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they can be heard by their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be you. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, Neither will your father forgive your As Johnny said last week so well, the three great pillars of piety of Jewish religion were prayer, giving, and fasting. The three pillars. These were the marks of spiritual maturity. And what Jesus is doing in these verses is challenging the reason you're doing them. He's challenging the motive that you're doing them. The controlling verse of this entire section, if you want to look at it right here, in chapter 6, verse 1, it controls the rest of these three pillars. Jesus said, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward for your Father who is in heaven. Jesus is saying to us, Beware. Be aware. That's what that word is. Be aware. Be conscious of why you're doing these things. Why you're acting in these ways. Why you're doing these godly things. The message translation translates verse one like this. Be especially careful when you're trying when you are trying to be good so that you don't make a performance out of it. Okay? Be careful. When you're doing these things, that you're not—it's not a performance. That's what Jesus is getting at here. Jesus is asking us here to be careful, be aware of why we're doing these things, why we're giving, why we're, why we're praying, why we're, fast, why we're fasting. And and really, the question he's asking us here is why, right? It's a why question in these verses. Why are you doing these things? What's the internal motivation? I find what John Boykin says in his article called The Gospel of Confidence. I find it helpful here. Listen to what he says. So what is so bad about the Pharisees' hypocrisy anyway? Yes. If we think of it as consisting merely in their teaching one thing, while in fact practicing something contradictory, we miss Jesus' point completely. What he nailed them for was that they were using God and the things of God 
as a means to get something else. Theirs was the problem of priority, he writes. Their first priority was social status, and they were using God to get it. He concludes by saying this, What greater affront to God could there be than ours? Better to ignore him altogether than to exploit him as a means to get something else you value. Brothers and sisters, that is what Jesus is saying. That's his basic message. He's challenging the people of his day. He's challenging us today, 2,000 years later, to look at our motives for doing the godly things we do. Look at our motives. What are our motives for giving, he said last week. Next week, we're going to look at what are our motives for fasting. And this week, we're going to look at what are our motives for praying. Why do we pray in public? And here he mentions two motives. The first one, he says, is we value people's opinion above God. We value people's opinion above God. Look at verses 5 and 6 with me. It says, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and in the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received the reward. At the time of Jesus, around noon time, a, a, a bell would be rung at the temple, indicating that the new sacrifices were going to be done. Okay? They were being performed. And it would be the perfect time to time your walk on the streets of Jerusalem so that when that bell rang, you could stop on that street corner and start to pray. So that people could see so that you would, they would look at Blake and say, Wow, what a pious man he is. It's interesting, there are two struggles we have when we pray. But the root of both of those struggles actually is the same. There are some people that struggle to pray in public at all, right? Maybe you're one of those people. You struggle to raise your voice when you do congregational prayer. I remember one time, it was basically 17 years ago when I got here, a few months after I got here, we were in the back Sunday school room, and it still had, it didn't have carpet at that time, it had the, the, those tiles, and we had these big round tables on them. And we were at some meeting, and, and I, I like to, you know, have many people pray, as you know, and I said, why don't we just pray around the table, you know? And so the person on my left started praying, and I was praying, and I heard that a chair squeak out. <laughs> and and then light footsteps leaving. And I kind of opened one eye and I saw this this woman leaving. And I was really troubled with it. And and so I I kind of pushed my chair out and I followed her and I caught her out by the road and I said, Is, is something going on? Is something wrong? Is something wrong? And she said, I cannot pray out loud. And so I had to leave. Because we were forcing people to pray out loud. I said, I'm never forcing anybody to pray out loud. But she had to leave. There's an embarrassment regarding public prayer. Maybe you don't think your words are eloquent enough. Or you worry that your prayer is going to be too short. Boy, I hope I don't pray after one of the elders. You know? Or that your requests are not random. 
or your voice doesn't sound right. Whatever the reason, it basically boils down to you're more concerned about what people are thinking about you than about your prayer to God, right? That's what Jesus is saying here. You mean the same for someone who prays very easily in public. That same problem. They're more concerned about what people are thinking about them than about who they're friends with. A shy person is more concerned about people thinking worse than them. A more gregarious person, maybe, who prays in public is concerned more about what people are thinking about. Wanting people to see and pray and to be impressed. And this is the type of prayer we see in Luke 18 with the, with the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, right? The Pharisee, it says, stands alone, interesting, in the temple. Make sure he's alone. He's, he's out in front of everybody and he prays, right? He's making sure that people see him and he prays. Brothers and sisters, it is not wrong to be seen praying at all. But it is wrong to pray in order to be seen. And that is a hard sin to identify. It is a hard sin to root out. Motive is hard, brothers and sisters. But that's what Jesus is always poking around, isn't he? He's always poking around in our heart. He's always poking around in our motive. That's exactly what he's doing here. Now, one way to identify this motive, one way to kind of see, give it maybe an acid test for yourself, is to answer a couple of these questions, which in my week this week were horribly convicting. And maybe I pray that they're horribly convicting to you too. So here are a couple questions to answer to get at that motive for praying. Do you pray more in public or in private? Do you pray more fervently, eloquently, or intimately in public or private? When you pray, are you a spectator of your own prayer? You know what I mean by that? You're thinking about you. In other words, are you thinking more about what other people are thinking about you than of God? Are you more concerned about bringing your prayers before men that's convicting. When that's the case, Jesus says, listen, if you're more concerned about what other people think of you, you got it. That's what you're aiming for, that's what you'll get. If your aim is honor among men, then you have the reward you're aiming for. It's interesting, James Boyce, who was pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church down in Philadelphia before his death in, in 2000, a great pastor, great theologian. He was usually a very optimistic preacher, but he said this, which I thought was interesting. I believe not one prayer in 100 that fill our churches on Sunday morning is actually made to Almighty God. And that includes the prayers. I don't know if that statistic is true, but you get the point. I think we can all shake our heads a little in concession to praying for how people think of us versus what God is here praying for. 
I gotta tell you, I battle this every single week when I stand up here and pray. I'm sure that Stephen does too, the men who lead this in worship. We struggle with this. We struggle keeping our mind on God and praying to God versus thinking about what you are thinking about my words, my pauses, my passion, my emotion. I mean, it goes on, doesn't it? As Ken Hughes writes, all tend to regard sin as something that affects us when we are far from God. That's how we think of sin. I'm far from God and sinning. But sin is far more subtle, far more ingrained than that. It intrudes into the very highest and holiest acts of It's true. So sin intrudes in our, into our devotions, doesn't it? When we're doing our devotions, are we looking for the knowledge that we can impress with? Are we reading so that God can speak to ourselves? Sin intrudes into our discipling, isn't it? Wanting to look good in front of that person. Wanting to guide them wisely instead of just showing who you are. Sin intrudes into our marriages. Don't we all want to look like the perfect couple? Don't we all want to do that? Instead of caring about how God is reflected in our marriage. Which, by the way, it's reflected more in weakness than in strength. So into our music, wanting to sound perfect, perform it perfectly, instead of glorifying God. Sin intrudes into our evangelism, doesn't it? Why don't we evangelize? What's the number one reason why we don't share our faith? Fear, right? And that comes in many different flavors. Fear about not knowing the answer. Fear about not doing it winsomely enough. Fear about what the other person will think of me. And it turns into a prayer life, brothers and sisters. Because we value what people think more than what God thinks. So, what's the answer? Jesus gives us the answer in verse 6. You just look down there. He says, Listen, go into your. When you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who is in secret. The answer actually is pretty simple. And that is, he's not saying don't pray in public anymore. He's saying develop your prayer life with me more. You and me, sister. You and me, brother. Develop your prayer life alone with God. Pray in the context of just God and you more. Develop your relationship with God more. And you know what the reward will be? The reward isn't granting the request. The reward is your relationship with God. Your relationship with God. And then, then it actually starts flowing out into your public prayers. And there's a wonderful gift that follows. Once you really have your, your established prayer life with your Father alone, what happens is you're given the gift of self-forgetfulness in public. You just pray. Just like you did back there. But right here. You forget about the people. 
The second thing we value is eloquence over content. Eloquence over content. Look at verse 7. Jesus says there, and when you pray, do not keep up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard through their many words. If you've ever been to Hawaii, you know that the word for someone who from the mainland is, and forgive my pronunciation if you've been to Hawaii, I haven't, is Ha'oli. Ha'oli. That's someone from the mainland. Interesting, that word came into existence in the 19th century when the word, when the missionaries started coming here. Before the missionaries came, the Hawaiian people used to sit outside their temples for long periods of time, meditating and preparing themselves to enter. And then they would literally creep into their temples, leave their gift, and creep back out. And then they would spend many hours outside the temple, meditating, in order to, as they said, breathe life into their prayers. They were what, what they were doing through all those machinations was breathing life into their prayers. And then the Hawaiian people noticed that when the missionaries started coming, they got up, uttered a few sentences, said amen, and went on their way. And so, for that reason, the Hawaiians called them ha'oli, which means without breath. Without breath. Those who fail to breathe life into their prayers. Now, that's how pagans think of prayer. You've got to breathe life into them. Okay? That has to be something, there has to be something more than simply putting your petitions up to your God. It can't be that simple. There has to be something more. There has to be something more that, that breathes life into your prayers than just simply putting your petitions And we can begin to think a lot like pagans in this right now. We can begin, it comes naturally to us. We have to do something more to breathe life into our prayers. And what Jesus is saying in verse 7 is, no, that's how the Gentiles pray. Jesus is saying, think of prayer, don't think of prayer in an unchristian way. Don't think of prayer like the Gentiles did. Now we see this exemplified really beautifully in, in 1 Kings 18. In 1 Kings 18, you know there's that great challenge between the priests of Baal and Elijah, right? And Elijah challenges them. He says, if your God is the true God, then they go to uh, to stacks of, of, of stones and you put wood on it and you put a sacrifice on there and you pray to your God and if your God comes down and accepts the sacrifice then we'll follow your God. I'll, I'll pray to Yahweh and if he does it then we'll both go and follow Yahweh. And so if you remember, you remember the priests of Baal cry out all morning. All morning they're praying, they're praying, they're praying. The Bible says nothing happens. And so, in the afternoon, after Elijah kind of pokes them with a sharp stick, in the afternoon, they start crying out even louder. And if you remember, they start cutting themselves. They start, what they're trying to do is they're trying to breathe light into their prayers. And sometimes we can start thinking like that. What can we do? What can I do to get God's attention? 
What words can I use? What phrases can I sculpt? What passion can I put in? What emotion can I, can I exude? How can I say it just right? That God will hear me. That God will pay attention to this prayer. How can I do that? How can I get God's attention? That's how we think. 20th century Norwegian pastor Oli Halsby likens prayer to mining in Norway. Demolition decree the mine shaft took two basic actions. There were long periods of time, he writes, when deep holes are being bored with great effort into the hard rock. To bore these holes deeply enough into the most strategic spots for removing the most rock took the work of long hours of patience, steadiness, and great skill. Once the holes were, were dug, a shot was placed down in there and was attached to a fuse. To light the fuse, he writes, and fire the shot is not only easy, but it's also very interesting. One sees results, explosions, pieces fly in all directions, he says. He concludes that while the more painstaking work of boring holes takes both skill and patience and strength of character, anyone and light a fuse. And he's not to public work, tempted to write fuse prayers. We want those prayers that, that explode, that bring results. How can I get those results? Now, it's not sinful to be eloquent in prayer. It's not. It's not sinful to think of your prayers at time. It's not. It's not sinful to pray long prayers. It's not sinful. Perhaps you, you pray with great emotion. However God created you to be is how you should pray. Okay? But the truth of the matter is, if we want, if we're praying in public these fused prayers, we're looking for results. How can I do this? What are people going to think? If we're, looking, if we're praying those type of prayers, they do not get any more attention than a whole boring prayers. Do you want to know what a whole boring prayer sounds like? Elijah prayed a whole boring prayer. All the theatrics of the pagan prayers were over. These are the words of Elijah to God. O oh Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Let it be known today that you are God in Israel. And that I am your servant. And have done all the things that you command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me. So that these people will know that you, O Lord, are God. And that you are turning their hearts back. Think about it. The spiritual life of Israel is on the line. And this is the prayer he prays. Simple, straightforward, not that eloquent. I mean, he even says, answer me twice. I mean, you can't repeat in prayer. It's boring. He prayed a whole story. Very much like the prayer that Jesus teaches us to pray right here in verses 9 through 13. It's a whole boring prayer. I mean, boring in almost two senses of the word, right? This is not an exciting prayer. 
Look at it. Jesus said, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, and we also have no hope for your debts. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from you. This is the content that God tells us to be in the prayer. This is the pattern. I mean, he says there in verse 9, therefore pray like this. Like this. It's a pattern for our prayer. It's a simple pattern for our prayer. You notice that, first of all, this prayer is concise. It's not long. And Jesus, Jesus prayed long prayers. I mean, he prayed long prayers many times. He prayed all night. In the of the seven, he prayed long prayers. There's nothing wrong with long prayers. But he's teaching us. He's saying, just be concise. It's okay. And then don't have to follow it. There are times for long prayers to spend time with God, to develop your relationship, to ask and depend on Him. But again, keep this in mind. There's nothing more powerful about praying for 90 seconds and there is praying for 90 minutes. You're not going to sway God by the amount of time by the words you use. You're not going to sway God. And he tells us in the very next verse why you're not going to sway him. Why? Because he already has the answer. He already knows what he's going to do. He's sovereign. And you're not going to sway him. So one helpful way to think of prayer is the process of you aligning your will with God's will. That's why you're spending time in these holy boring prayers. These patient, steady prayers. Is because you're aligning your will to God's. Tim Keller tells the story of the girl he was dating in his early 20s. He really wanted to marry this girl. But he sensed that the girl wanted out of the relationship. Have you ever been in one of those relationships? He writes, I prayed for an entire year that she wanted out of the relationship. All year I prayed, Lord, don't let her break up with me. Of course, in hindsight, it was the wrong girl. I actually did what I could to help God with this prayer. Because one summer near the end of the relationship, I moved to a location where I was closer to her and she could see me more easily. As if I was saying to the Lord, I'm making this as easy as possible for you. I'd asked for this, and I'd even taken the geographical distance away. But as I look back, he says, God was saying, Son, when a child of mine makes a request, I always give that person what they would have asked for it's not wrong for Tim Keller. It's not wrong for us to pray for things in earnest, long, passionate prayers. But in God's sovereignty, he knew that Kathy Keller was waiting for in his future. And Tim had to work his own way to that. And brothers and sisters, many times we just have to work our way in prayer 
Full morning prayers to your God. Second thing I want us to notice about this is it's a pattern of prayer. The Lord's prayer is a pattern, not a mantra. It's a pattern of prayer. Again, verse 9, pray like this. The King James writes, after this manner, therefore you pray. After this manner. Jesus didn't intend for us to pray this prayer over and over again. Again, it's not wrong to pray this prayer. But it wasn't intended to be the prayer you pray. It was intended for us to be used as a pattern of prayer. It's interesting, John Pombaro writes, we are usually at a loss regarding what to say to God. When we've done that, you come to him, you say a couple sentences, and you kind of a loss. He writes, the Lord's Prayer frees us from the tyranny of spiritual creativity and allows us to rest in the confidence of something certain and true. Instead of fabricating something snappy to garner God's attention, Jesus would have us lose all such originality and simply raise your eyes. I love how I put that. At the invitation of Jesus himself. So, plagiarizing this pattern of prayer is what we're encouraged to do. And the framework begins with our Father in Heaven. A proper prayer recognizes that it's the relationship that's important. That's why that's put there. It's the relationship that's important. Adam Robinson, my, my late college teacher, uh, used this illustration. He said when his children were small, he played a game. He'd have them come up and sit on his lap and he'd put pennies in his fist and then he'd close his fingers around it. And then the young children would try and, and cry the fingers apart. And the, and the rules of the game were if the finger was pried open, it couldn't be snapped back. So they slowly pried the fingers apart and they would get the few pennies that were in his hand. After they got the pennies, he said they would push my hand away, jump down, and run away all happy that they had gotten the pennies. And he says this, sometimes we come to God in the same way. We come to God for the pennies in his hand. Lord, I need a passing grave. Help me study. Lord, I need a job. Lord, my mother is ill. We reach for pennies, he says, when God grants that request, we jump down and push his hand away. More important than the pennies in God's hand, he writes, hand of God himself. That's what prayer is all about. When you go to God in prayer, the thing that you must remember is the relationship. And so the Lord's Prayer starts out with that. Here's the relationship. I'm your father. I'm your Abba. I'm your dad. And the first three petitions, pages 8 and 10, help us stay in that relationship. Hallowed be your name. Here's where we honor God. In Scripture, we speak of God's name, of His character, of His attributes, of His nature. And here, in this part of the prayer, we stare at God and reflect back to Him. Then we pray for God's kingdom, your kingdom come. Here we pray for God's rule to become more and more reality here on earth. For His rule to come here and be a reality. In people's hearts, evangelically. Evangelistically, you that's how God's rule comes is through people's hearts. We pray for the lives, our lives to be spiritually mature. Then we pray for the church, God's instrument of bringing God's kingdom to earth. The church is the instrument through which He brings His kingdom. And here we pray longingly that Christ will return and bring it to a physical reality. 
The third petition we pray for is God's will. Your will be done. Here we pray that we will have a desire to do God's will more passionately. That we will pray that we will know God's will more intimately. We pray that we will know God's will. Brothers and sisters, He doesn't want us to be ignorant of His will. He wants us to know His will. I'm reminded of Wendell Berry's, what he wrote. He said, I often, I have often not known where I was going until I was already there. I've had to share my desires and goals, but my life has come to me, and I have gone to it mainly by way of mistakes and surprises. I often receive better than I deserve. Often my faithless hopes have rested on bad mistakes. I'm an ignorant pilgrim here crossing a dark valley. Brothers and sisters, that's not how God wants us to live. He doesn't want us to live as ignorant pilgrims going through a dark valley. Here we pray, Lord, reveal your will to me, to us, to our church, in my life. And he does that. Then the second of three petitions in verses 11 and 13, we pray concerning ourselves for our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. Here we pray for our needs and the needs of those around us. It is here that we develop our dependence on God. God, my life is out of control. This situation is out of control. I need you this time. Because I can't. Then we move from our physical need to our spiritual need. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Here we confess our own sins, our brother's feeling. Let us this morning. Our need for forgiveness. And here we also pray for a soft heart to be a forgiving person, don't we? Finally, we pray for protection. And he is not into temptation to deliver us from evil. Martin Luther wrote about this. We cannot help but be exposed to the assaults of sin and Satan. But we pray that we will not fall and perish under it. Here we pray that the Lord will protect us from the temptations that Satan is always prodding us into, that our flesh is always leading us into. Protect me, Lord, from those temptations. And here we pray for the sin and power in our lives to be lessened. And Jesus ends his prayer in a very interesting way, don't you think? Here he, he expounds on the fifth petition in verses 14 and 15. He says, for if you forgive others your trespasses, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others your trespasses, will your Father forgive your trespasses. I don't know about you, but when I read the fifth petition, when I read that, that's, that's scary verses, isn't it? That's scary stuff. On the surface, this can sound like there is work to be done in our salvation, isn't it? Hey, listen, if God isn't going to forgive me, if I don't forgive that person, then all I have to do is forgive that person, and, okay, I see how this works now, right? We can get into that kind of quick pro quo type of, of spirituality. Here it seems to be saying that there is conditional forgiveness. It also seems contrary to 1 John 1, 9, doesn't it? we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. Well, not so fast. Did you forgive Bob? 
Did you forgive Betty? Because you've got to do that first for me to fulfill 1 John 1 9. Gosh, it doesn't sound like the Jesus I know, does it? I think you have to remember the context. Right? First rule of Bible interpretation context is key. What is the context Jesus is talking about here? The context of hypocrisy, right? Verse 1. Jesus is speaking to this section of potential hypocrites. People praying for people's attention. People who are different on the outside, here's the key, than they are on the inside. That's who Jesus is speaking to here. So what's Jesus teaching? I think he's giving the same challenge in different words that Paul gave to the Corinthian church. In chapter 13, verse 5 of the second letter, Paul writes, Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Thus, Jesus is saying here, people who really realize the enormity of what they have been forgiven will be forgiven people. Let me say that again. People who realize the enormity of what you have been forgiven will be forgiven people. Ritterboss, H.M. Ritterboss comments by saying, by forgiving his debtors, the believer shows himself to be a child of God. Eugene Peterson writes, muckraking is not the gospel work. Witch hunting is not gospel work. Shaming the outcast is not gospel work. Forgiving sin is gospel work. William Blake, my namesake, wrote, the essence of the gospel is continual mutual forgiveness. The mark the regenerate person, on the mark of a person that has the spirit inside them, is not perfect forgiveness, but boy, you're bent to it. You are bent in that direction. You're not bent in this rigorous, I'm never going to forgive, hold grudges, bitterness. You're not bent that way. doesn't mean you're perfect in this, but it means you're bent. Your heart is broken. You realize what you have been forgiven. And thus, the gospel changes your heart to be more and more of a forgiving person. And that's what Jesus is saying. So a genuine believer understands that they need Jesus' righteousness. They need his righteousness because without it, I'm a wretch. I'm a wretch. The genuine believer understands that they desperately need the forgiveness found at the cross. Because you look at your life, you look at your heart really, and you go, Oh my goodness. Thank God for Jesus. Thank God he forgives you. I would have forgiven you. A genuine believer understands what Jesus gave up in order to be forgiven. A genuine believer understands the enormity of what they have been forgiven. Thus, their hearts are soft. And they are forgiven. Come, Blackmore wrote this. Our daughter has Down syndrome. We've been teaching her to say the Lord's Prayer with us in church. Over the years, we've learned that she has her own interpretations of everything. So it didn't surprise us when we heard her say, and forgive us our debts as we forgive together. And what we think about it, we suspect that's what Jesus meant for us. Father God, I thank you for your word.
Spirit convict us, challenge us, encourage us to be prayer warriors in public as well as in